Okay, thank you. And now we will really begin. <coughs> so, insight. I, I think that's a word that must have some special <coughs> meaning to you, um, otherwise you wouldn't be here. And we probably everyone in this room has a slightly different idea of what that word means. But what we're particularly interested in getting to is what is the meaning of this word as it's associated with uh, uh, meditation practice and as it's associated with spiritual practice and spiritual growth in general. Divine insight. Uh, and, and I do want to make that clear. Although I'm going to be speaking to you from the perspective of what the Buddha taught, uh, the Buddha's original teachings, not any particular religious interpretation of what the Buddha taught, uh, the terminology that we'll use comes from that teaching and that tradition. But I don't think anything that we're going to talk about this weekend um, doesn't apply totally to any spiritual path that a person is on. Uh, whether it's Christian, uh, uh, Judaic, Islamic, uh, Hindu, uh, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. To the degree that any of those systems is treated and accepted as a path of spiritual growth rather than a religion, what you're going to find is that there is a convergence here. Insight, insight is, is how we come to know a higher truth. And that's what insight is about. Uh, discovering a higher truth, a greater truth, a deeper truth, a more profound, profound truth, a truth that can transform us. And if it were to be widely enough known, could perhaps transform the world, transform society. But that's what insight is about, a higher truth the highest truth, ultimately. Um, over the course of the weekend, we'll be talking about no-self, and at one point towards the end, we'll start talking about nirvana, or nibbana. And I, I know that these are concepts that might seem like they're saying something very different than, for example, if you come from a... a uh, Jewish or Christian background, but they're not. Um, no self could probably be better understood as no separateness. And if you come from a from a Christian tradition, you're looking to overcome the separate the separation that you experience as an individual from God. You're looking for a return to the divine. 
And that's essentially the same thing that's being talked about as no self, no separateness. And no separateness from what? Well, no separateness from the ultimate. Uh, whether you call the ultimate God or emptiness or whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, it's what you are not, in fact, separate from. And what you're trying to achieve is that place where you you have a, you have made the return to the divine, or you dwell in nirvana, and they, they sound very different, but they're really not. They're really the same thing. Really, all trying to go to go to the same place, but the words and the the uh, the systems that we build up around these make them appear much more different than they really are. But how we get there is through a growth in understanding. And that's what insight is about. And that's what we're going to be talking about this weekend. Um, I'm sure everybody... Insight's a familiar word. We all use it. We probably have... You know, if I were to ask any one of you, can you give me a definition of insight? Um, Different ones of us would probably emphasize different things, but we probably say a lot of, the, of similar things. Insight involves some kind of understanding. That's, that's on the slide here. And in particular, uh, it's an understanding that pertains to cause and effect relationships. Whether we're looking at just a very limited situation, to have insight into the situation, or to have insight into a person is to have an understanding of some of the whys about why it is the way it is, why they are the way they are, why they behave the way they do, right? It's an understanding that has to do with cause, causal relationships. Um, it can refer to insight into uh, a thing or a person or a process, or it can refer to insight into a, a situation, a system, whatever. These are, these are the ways we use it. Uh, we also use it in reference to a person's ability to see into situations and people and things and, and penetrate to uh, their, their deeper uh, nature. So we say a person, a person has insight. Um, and we use it introspectively. We, we use it, there's an appreciation of the fact that insight does involve some looking in, some introspection that ultimately, uh, although we can have insight into all kinds of things out there, ultimately what we really want is insight into what's going on in here. We want insight into who we are and why we are the way we are. And most especially, insight into how, how we can become more of what we would like to be. How we can realize our own potential. That's one of the things that comes with understanding how something works. Is that you can actualize the potential of something more through that understanding, and of course, that's what insight allows us to do with ourselves. 
the more the more we can understand ourselves, the more we can shape and direct ourselves to to realize our fullest potential, to become what we want to be, what we would hope to be, and to leave behind a lot of the things that uh, we'd rather not be, but we find we are anyway. Uh, insight is an English translation of a Pali word, vipassana. And pasana means to see, means seeing. And when you put the vi in front of it to make it vipassana, it makes it something like a special thing. And insight's a very, very good translation for vipassana. It's such a good translation that I'm just going to go to a definition of insight that I got from dictionary.com okay. and we'll begin just looking at that to see what insight means. It is an instance of apprehending the nature of a thing, especially through intuitive understanding. Actually, we used intuitive on, that, on the previous slide there, an intuitive understanding of the underlying nature. This is a really important thing about insight. It is, it has this quality of intuition about it. A penetrating mental vision or discernment, the faculty of seeing into inner character or underlying truth. And then psychology, it's an understanding of relationships that sheds light on or helps to solve a problem. And we're going to be talking about insight problem solving. Uh, in psychotherapy, it's a recognition of the sources of emotional difficulty. As a matter of fact, in psychotherapy, the first kind of insight a person has to have is they have to have an in insight into the fact that they have a problem. And then they need to be guided to, uh, to a greater insight of what the nature of that problem is and, and how it impacts on them so that they can begin to unravel uh, the underlying problem that uh, brought them into a situation where they need some kind of therapy. In psychology, it's also an understanding of motivational forces behind one's actions, thoughts, or behavior, self-knowledge. So you see, this Formal technical definition is really saying a lot of the same things that we did, uh, that, that I covered with what are probably most people's usual interpretations of what insight means. Um, this is a really good term to describe what we're trying to do with the spiritual practice and with meditation. We want to apprehend the true nature of something, right? You want to apprehend the true nature of your own mind. And that's what we're doing when we're sitting meditating, is we're, we're putting ourselves in a situation where we have the opportunity to observe our mind. It takes a while to learn to do that. You tend to learn to meditate, and you sit there, and you keep trying to do something rather than observe what's happening but eventually you realize that's what it's really all about, is observing your own mind. And through observing your own mind, you begin to intuitively understand in a way that you didn't before what's going on there. And then 
as we'll see as we go along, uh, with a little bit of guidance, the same meditation experience allows you to have insight into who and what you are, what kind of what kind of being you really are, and what kind of reality that you're living in. Insight into your own mind, insight into who and what you are, and insight into the greater reality that you're a part of. We meditate in order to cultivate this penetrating mental vision or discernment. There's a reason that everybody isn't experiencing insight all the time is they're lacking certain skills and certain abilities that make insight possible. But even more than that, in meditation, as the mind becomes trained, we create opportunities for insight that rarely arise otherwise, just in the course of, of leading a normal life. So, the word insight is very appropriate to what we're trying to do <coughs> on a spiritual path and in meditation. Would you not agree? Okay. So now we want to look at what psychology has to tell us about <coughs> insight, because psychologists study things like that, and psychologists have studied insight. And first of all, in this definition, we have three different things. We have therapy, uh, we have self-knowledge, <coughs> and we have problem-solving. And one of the interesting things that psychologists who study this come up with is that that same process is involved in all three things. And so this has made it possible for them to study insight through problem solving. And so psychologists have invented a kind of problem that they call an insight problem that you have to solve with insight. And of course, then they take non-insight problems, and they have subjects solve insight problems and non-insight problems, and then they get to study all kinds of things about how they do it and what happens and, and so forth. Um, we'll get into that in just a moment. Another thing I want to point out to you about what we ordinarily call insight is it? it's usually sudden. It's just whether you're, whether it's solving a problem or whether it's some insight into why you keep getting yourself into the kinds of situations you do. When insight comes, it comes all of a sudden. It's like, wow, how did I miss that? Well, there it is. Where did that come from? often described as an epiphany. And also, that's what we're referring, we're referring to when we describe insight as being intuitive. We don't know where it comes from. It's coming from inside somewhere. And that's what intuitive means. To it, uh, tuition, in, intuition, it means 
Knowing, it means knowing that's coming from inside, inner knowing. That's what intuition is. So we have these sudden flashes of knowing that come from somewhere inside that we don't have uh, direct access to. And we don't really know where these understandings come from when they arise. We just are suddenly the beneficiary of them. They just appear. So now we're going to go and we're going to look at what psychologists have been able to figure out about insight. The insights that they've gotten into insight. They're generating non-insight problem solving and insight problem solving and comparing what happens in the two. Non-insight problem solving the answer comes slowly and methodically as a result of conscious analysis. You are aware of the steps that lead to the solution and you can explain how you got there. We do a lot of this kind of problem solving all the time, right? We figure something out. We ponder something, reflect on it. Yes, well if this and that, but then and so forth. And it's a very logical process. And it happens in consciousness. Inside problem solving. When you solve a problem through insight, the answer suddenly appears. It's unexpected. It's often difficult to explain the logic by the, uh, behind the answer to somebody else. Uh, so it's just springing into your consciousness, but it didn't get worked out step by step in your consciousness. There's some interesting things about insight solutions in general. They usually involve seeing things in a new way that you didn't before. As a matter of fact, I probably could have put the things on this uh, oops, on this slide. Yeah, there's my cursor. We'll probably put this one closer to seeing the problem in a new way, put them together. Letting go of past experiences that were preventing the solution from presenting itself. In your own experience, isn't that something that's often the case when you have, when you experience an insight into something? Is that there was something that was blocking you from looking at things in that way. But then, when you got that out of the picture and you were able to look at it in a new way, all of a sudden, aha, you had one of those epiphanies. Something made sense that didn't before. Um, often, insight solutions involve connecting a problem to another problem that you already know the answer to. And as a matter of fact, this is a characteristic that goes even deeper than that. In general, insight solutions have a quality of they're metaphorical, they're analogical. That's This is to that as that is to this other thing. And all of a sudden, when you see when you understand the way that this and this are somehow parallel, then you realize you've, you've had an insight into the inner workings of this because of this other thing you've understood. 
and now it's given the key you need that, ah, the solution to this problem can also be applied to this one. As a matter of fact, like I said earlier that insight solutions typically you have somebody solving insight problems and you ask them, how did you figure that out? Um, they can't, it's, they have a lot of trouble getting a logical explanation, but there's a lot of, well, it's kind of like, and so forth, a lot of metaphors. Okay? This is something that's very typical of insight solution. You see these similarities. You, you've learned something from other things that you already knew. Sometimes it involves seeing the problem in the context of a bigger picture. There was one you were focused like this, you just couldn't quite see what the answer was. When you took a broader perspective, then all of a sudden something made sense that didn't previously. How does, ask yourself how this happens, where does it come from? To me it's such an obvious answer, maybe it is to you too. Where do these insights come from? Subconsciousness. Your subconscious mind, exactly, exactly. If you think about your mind, the conscious part of your mind is this one tiny little part of your mind. And the rest of your mind is this vast unconscious in which all kinds of wonderful things happen. And that is, of course, where insight is coming from. So, uh, to continue with the theme of what psychologists have learned about insight from problem solving. Basically, problem solving can be described in terms of four steps. First is a preparation stage. This is something that happens in consciousness. You recognize that ah, there is a problem. And what you do is you do some sorting. What is relevant to this problem and what is not? You set aside everything that's irrelevant. You focus on what's relevant. And that's called selective encoding in, in psych speak. But it means just basically that process that we have. Whenever you've got a problem, uh, the first things that you'll catch your first thing you'll catch your mind doing if you pay attention is it's kind of lining up all of its decks. Okay, what are the things that are relevant to this? What are the things that need to be taken into account. The second stage is incubation. And this is where the solution is generated. Now, in this incubation stage, one of the things that happens is you take all of these factors that you decided are relevant and you arrange them in different ways, try all kinds of different combinations, this one with that one, this one with the other one, this one with the next one, these three together, so on and so forth. Looking for a solution. And that's called selective combination. 
but you're familiar with that, right? That's, that's what your mind does. In fact, if you watch it, this is a wonderful thing about meditating and developing mindfulness, is you can watch yourself solve ordinary problems, like how I managed to go there to pick this up and still arrive for that appointment on time and miss this traffic there. You know, if you watch yourself doing that, you realize it's kind of, it, it, it's, a, it's a trial and error thing. It's just your mind goes and it starts through all these different possibilities looking for the one that fits. It's the kind of thing that you could easily <coughs> program a machine to do. As a matter of fact, we have machines. I've got one of them in front of me that do that for us all the time. And it can do all these different combinations really quickly, and if you tell it what you're looking for, it can tell you in, in, in very little time what are the combinations that are most likely to solve your problem. And your brain does that too. Your mind does that too. And that's part of what you're doing when you're thinking through a problem. You're trying different things that same which combinations work. There's another process that's very important. It's called selective comparison. And that's where you're comparing this problem and its solution with all kinds of other situations. And when you find when you find a one that seems similar to what you're dealing with now, then you can try out the solution to it and see if it works for what you're doing. Um, what you're trying to solve in, in, in the present. You recognize that as something that your, your minds do? One of the ways that we find solutions. Now, when this is all happening in consciousness, which you would describe as thinking the problem through analyzing the situation, so on and so forth. You use that kind of language. This is non-insight problem solving. When the answer just shows up, there it is, ah! That's an insight solution. And the biggest difference between an insight solution and a non-insight solution is where it comes from. So that's the next stage that happens, is that you've come up with a solution, and it's either an insight solution or it's a non-insight solution, depending on whether you went through all the steps consciously and you know how you got there and, and, and so forth, or whether it just kind of came from nowhere. The fourth stage in problem solving is verification. You've got to make sure that the solution that you got really works. And of course, the ultimate test is, is does, it, does it work in practice? When you implement the solution, does it give you the result that you want? But uh, before, you know, it would be very cumbersome to test every solution that way. So usually we use our uh, conscious thought processes to model the situation, model the problem, and it's see if the solution really fits, see if the solution is going to give us the answer that we want. Now, when this is something that has to happen in consciousness. And it happens really easy if it's a non-insight solution. Because all you have to do is review the steps you use to get there and compare them with the problem you're trying to solve in the first place and you get, yeah, yeah, okay. So we don't, verification in consciousness happens much more automatically and readily 
with non-insight solutions. Insight solutions, though, they need they need the application of these higher mental powers to them to make sure that they really are going to work. Have you ever had a problem and the solution that comes to mind is one that you know you could never do because it's illegal or immoral or whatever, right? I could fix this situation. <laughs> but you know that you can't. And uh, so insight solutions, need you need to take that front part of your brain that uh, uh, is, is really good at making those kinds of judgments and apply it to the solution and make sure that it works in that way. The other thing is that some, sometimes an insight solution is great in general, but it doesn't really fit the specifics of the problem. And so, therefore, it's, it's not going to work. I mean, it's, gee, this is exactly the way I solved this other problem the other time. I could do exactly the same thing if I had only $50,000 to, you know, so sometimes, uh, sometimes the parts don't match. So insight solutions need to be verified in consciousness. Well, so do non-insight solutions. But it's a fourth part of the problem-solving process. Now, if you think about the way you solve a lot of real-life problems, in this incubation stage, the second stage here, in this stage, you have both conscious and unconscious processes doing this selective combination and this selective comparison. So you set up your problem and now you're thinking about it and while you're thinking about it an idea pops into your mind. You see what that is, that, that's, that's the insight process. And then you'll take that and consciously you'll, you'll immediately take the insight solution and you'll go back here you go to this <coughs> solution, or you go to this verification stage, and you like say, okay, does this work? Is this helpful? Sometimes it's not a solution to the problem. Sometimes it's just a step along the way. But consciously, you examine it and say, okay, is this helpful? And if it is, but it's not the final solution to the problem, then you'll, you'll add that to the mix and you'll keep on working. And if you haven't found the solution yet, you'll probably have a number of these ideas pop into your mind in the process. So you can have a really simple situation where you come to a non-insight solution right away. Or you can have a situation where as soon as you start to work on the problem, an insight solution pops into your mind, you examine it, verify it, and hey, problem solved. But most of the time, it's more a combination of the two. Your conscious mind is trying all kinds of different combinations, and your unconscious mind is offering suggestions along the way, until between the two of them you come up with the answer you need, the solution to the problem. Okay, so what's good about this is it's allowed us to distinguish between the process of insight and to distinguish the process of non-insight that happens in consciousness. And it helps us, in general, to understand how we solve problems. It's one of three ways. It's either a non-insight solution right from the beginning, like a math problem or balancing your checkbook. That's what that is. Or it's an insight solution right away. Or it's a solution that's arrived at through a combination of the two. Well, life is 
the latter kind of problem. It involves insight and non-insight working together all the time. But we're after learning more about this insight process. Oh, by the way, I'm going to mention to you a few things, other things that psychologists have found out about non-insight versus insight problem solving. Because I think some of you will find this interesting. Okay, using fMRI and EEG, they've established that the brain behaves very differently when somebody's solving an insight problem compared to a non-insight problem. So if you wire somebody up or stick their head in an MRI machine or something like that and then give them an insight problem to solve, their brain reflects the fact that different processes are taking place than if you give them a non-insight problem. Maybe I should explain to you, give you a few examples of uh, non-insight problems. One that is uh, uh, one you'll like is called the Dunker Candle Problem, after, named after a guy named Dunker. It's not about dunking your candle. D-U-N-C-K-E-R. The problem is a person's given a candle, a match, and a box of tacks. And the assignment is to attach the candle to the wall and illuminate the room. <laughs> <laughs> That's an insight problem because it requires you to think in a different way. And if you solve that problem, it would most likely come to you in a flash of insight. What would happen is your logical mind would be ponderously struggling away with it and most likely telling you over and over again in uncountable different ways how this is totally impossible. <laughs> then, if you solve it, you'll solve it in a flat. You want to know the solution? Does anybody know the solution? Yeah. You take the box, yeah. you use it as a platform, you use the tacks to push it to the wall, you light the candle, you drip it over the box, and you put the candle away. Absolutely right. Mm -hmm. Now, did that just come to you in a flash, or did you know that yeah, previously? first time I've heard it. What? Yeah. First time you've heard it? Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. You're very good. You take you take the box. Okay. It's it's part of the, the equation. So you take the box. You take the tacks. You stick the box to the wall with the tacks, and then you drip light the candle. Drip a little bit of the candle onto the, the wax onto the box. Stick the candle onto the uh, onto the wax onto the box. And right. That, you, you're great. That's exactly it. <laughs> isn't that a, isn't that a great problem though? A great yeah, example right. of an insight problem. Another one uh, kind they do is uh, puzzles that require special spatial abilities. Like uh, it's uh, one is the nine dot problem where you have three rows of three dots. You have nine dots, and the you want to make a line that connects every dot. Uh, you want to use four lines and connect every dot. And it's the same thing. It's an insight problem because you'll try this and you'll try that and you'll try the other thing and everything else. And, and just about the point you think, there's no way to do this. It's impossible. All of a sudden, you'll see the answer. And then you'll make the four lines and connect all the dots. So, these, these are insight problems, the kind that are used. So they show that 
when somebody is is coming up in the process of coming up with an insight solution, their brain shows a different kind of electrical activity, and the fMRI will show different parts of the brain, different specific parts of the brain, becoming more active than others. Immediately before the solution appears, and and uh, when the solution appears. Um, another thing you might find interesting about this is that there's a definite difference between the right and left hemispheres. And uh, you probably won't be surprised at this, but non-insight solutions are left hemisphere. Insight solutions involve a lot of activity in the right hemisphere. So. There's some other interesting differences that psychologists have found between insight and non-insight problem solving. People solving non-insight problems can accurately predict when they're getting close to a solution how hot or cold they are. Not true for people solving insight problems. They don't have a clue until they suddenly know the answer. People who are in a better mood are more successful in solving insight problems. Positive feelings of joy and happiness have a unique effect, increasing the brain activity patterns characteristic of insight immediately before and while the problem is being solved. On the other hand, people experiencing anxiety are not able to solve insight problems very effectively. They're much more difficult. Now this is really important from the point of view of meditation, right? Because we meditate in order to be able to achieve insight. And your meditation goes better the more ha the happier you are, the more joyful, the more you're enjoying it. And as a matter of fact, I've encouraged you many times, always cultivate joy in your meditation. It's extremely important. Especially when you want if if you're meditating in search of insight. You approach the insight problem of meditation with a joyful mind and the, the insights will emerge much more easily. Here's another interesting thing. Allowing study participants to take breaks improves their performance on insight problems. And then there's another one. Adequate sleep helps to produce insight while sleep deprivation impairs it. Now I found, when I was researching this and came up with these facts, I found this very, very interesting. Because I've spent a lot of time in, quote, insight meditation retreats, where you're only allowed to sleep four hours a night. <laughs> <laughs> where the instruction was, I, I, I go along with the instruction, stay mindful all the time. But the instruction was, was don't take a break. Just keep you sit, or you walk, or you eat, or you sleep, or you pee, but you don't take a break. <laughs> and at those same meditation retreats, if you look at the expression on the faces of people, <laughs> they don't smile much. <laughs> so something can be learned from the psychologists on that. <laughs> Inside meditation retreat, you should get you should get enough sleep. 
you should get enough sleep all the time. But, you know, even for solving the insight problem that is life itself, get enough sleep, take breaks, cultivate joy and happiness. <laughs> anyway, and what we talked about so far has become really clear. The insight problem solving and insights in general, ins any kind of insight, not just problem solving. We can leave the problem solving behind somewhat now and just be the insight in general. Insight comes from the unconscious mind. Which explains why insight is sudden. Explains why it's intuitive, because that's to say that something's intuitive and to describe it as insight is basically two different ways of saying it's coming from your unconscious mind rather than analytical figuring figuring out of things. What we haven't really looked at is what makes insight so special compared to ordinary thinking and pondering. The fact is that it is much better. That without the help of insight, you know, I described a typical problem-solving situation where, you know, you have it, keeping having little flashes of insight to help guide you towards figuring out the problem. And you would you'd be much less successful in every aspect of your life if all you had to rely on was, was your conscious figuring out of things and deciding things and, and negotiating that way. Insight is extremely important and it's very powerful in ways that conscious thinking are not. Why is this? Well, one thing is that now, now this is something that you will gain insight into as a part of your meditation, but that's that consciousness unfolds sequentially, one step at a time. And there's only one limited part of your mind that is conscious. Whereas the unconscious is vast, your unconscious mind involves tremendous numbers of different processes. Uh, and they are interconnected to form hierarchies. So one of the differences between unconscious mentation and conscious thinking is the same difference that is, we refer to in uh, computer technology as serial versus parallel processing. You've only got one conscious processor. Well, it's not quite two. You have two. You have attention and awareness, and which is really great because you can use attention to keep tabs on what's going on, in, or use awareness to keep tabs on what's going on in attention. Which, when we get into insight as it arises in meditation, the way that you see these insights that actually profoundly change the way you, you, who you are, and the way your life works. That's what you have to rely on, is this interaction between attention and awareness. So, okay, you've got two processes taking place in consciousness, attention and awareness. But you've got thousands in the unconscious. To go back to problem solving, if you're trying to solve a problem consciously, because it's sequential, 
You have to limit yourself to just those factors and just those combinations that are most likely to produce a result based on logic. Whereas the unconscious can try out anything, no matter how absurd. It's free to try out all kinds of different combinations. So it's got a great advantage. It's going to come up with things that the ponderous process of conscious thinking isn't going to come up with anywhere nearly as easily. That's one important difference. Another important difference is if we go back to, remember when we are talking about problem solving the incubation stage, incubation stage, so there's selective combination and there's selective comparison. And selective comparison involves comparing with past experience. And there's a huge amount of that. So obviously your unconscious mind with its multitude of different processes is in a much better position to draw upon the whole vast collection of past experiences that you have in the process of selective comparison. Whereas your conscious mind is much more limited. And this is probably why inside solutions to problems rely on metaphor and analogy to describe and interpret. Because in fact, this is this particular aspect of problem solving, this is where the unconscious mind has such a tremendous advantage. It can draw on virtually the entirety of your past experience looking for that looking for that information that's going to really make things work. So it also explains why insight tends to be metaphorical. There is a third factor that comes into this as well. Everything that happens in consciousness is available to all of, to available to every part of the unconscious. As a matter of fact, we won't get into that much this weekend, but maybe next Thursday. The function of consciousness is exactly that, to make information available to all this multitude of unconscious processes. That's the purpose of serves. So whatever goes on in consciousness, all of its successes and failures in the process of trying to solve the problem, every part of the unconscious says, oh, I see, okay, I already tried that, I won't bother. But nothing that goes on in the unconscious is available to consciousness until it becomes conscious, which it usually does as an idea or a solution, potential solution. Or a dream. Well, uh, but a, a dream actually is a good example of uh, a place that insight solutions show up. Mm -hmm. You know, some of the most, some of the discoveries that have profoundly changed the world, uh, and some of you may be familiar with these. For example, uh, Kekulé figured out how the benzene, the structure of the benzene ring, which basically broke organic chemistry wide open and made 
right down to this present moment, drugs and plastics and everything else you can think of. Because he dozed off after dinner and had a dream of six monkeys chasing each other, each holding a tail. And he woke up and said, that's it. <laughs> it's a good example of insight, right? It's a metaphor. It was a metaphor that held the answer to a problem that he'd been working on for months with no success, using logic. And there's many examples of that. Monkey mind at its best. So, <laughs> monkey mind at its best. Monkey mind at its best. <laughs> <laughs> so I had a question. I had a question. Yeah, good. Let's have some questions. So you have your unconscious mind and your conscious mind, and or, or your your methodical thought processes yeah. section of your brain. And then as we age, we cultivate, or we have we have not cultivate, we have more experiences. Yeah. So, what is the relationship between this ability to have insight when you compare it with, say, the aging process or um, the number of experiences? Is there necessarily a relationship between the two, or is insight just something that we'll never know whether it's just separate? Uh, your question is basically you're asking. Because we accumulate more experience, do we tend to have more insight and better intuition the older yes. we get? The answer is yes. And at the same time, we tend to uh, that's we tend to negotiate our lives in that way. Provided you're making yeah, right. That's a good question. Uh, this might be a good time to take other questions. I was I was just asked about that. The, the younger somebody is, the, the less experiences they have. Wouldn't that also mean the less com if they had the necessary experiences to solve a problem, wouldn't they in some ways be able to see more clearly or have less options to come through in the, in the subconscious? Yeah, as a matter of fact, isn't that what we see? Younger people solve problems more quickly, provided they have the experience that contains the illusion. That's exactly what we see. Yeah. yeah. Can you, can you say anything at all about how these unconscious processes are finally launched into consciousness? It's always such a surprise to acquire them. It would be nice to be able to stack the deck a little. <laughs> well... What, what, you're, what you're saying is since, since insight and intuition is such a marvelous thing, uh, wouldn't it be nice to have more of it? How can we, we know, we're, we know we're clever. How can we, where did, how okay. does it get? I'll here? tell you what's happening. Uh, consciousness consists of awareness and attention. Attention is where the focus is, that's where the analysis is, everything else. But nothing comes to attention except through awareness. Everything from the unconscious first needs to go to awareness. And then it gets evaluated 
and awareness as to whether or not this is something that will become an object of attention. Have you ever, once the solution to problems has been arrived at, you realized that you had, quote, thought of it, but you didn't really. You were aware of it, but you were on the tail of something else, and so you ignored it. And this is going on all of the time. Different unconscious processes are always offering things to consciousness. One of the limitations of each individual unconscious process is that it's kind of in a room by itself, and it doesn't know all that much, and, and it's limited. It has a particular job it's responsible for. So when it decides that something that it's come up with is important enough that uh, it should be evaluated in consciousness, it projects it into awareness. But then it's up, it's, it's up to the rest of the mind to decide whether that's actually going to become an object of attention or not. And one of the problems that we have is attention is running all over the place, wasting its power and availability. That is precisely why when you gain control over attention and stabilize it, it's much more available to pick up on something really, really useful that's been projected into awareness. That's why also in your meditation practice, if you make, if you increase the power of consciousness, you know, consciousness is this little tiny dot on the whole sphere of, of mind. You make that bigger, you increase the likelihood that the mind is going to recognize something of importance that has been projected by a subconscious process. So. How do you improve the odds of having better intuition and insight? <laughs> That's why we meditate. I mean, this is one of the things that we could talk about. Well, why exactly do we meditate? I mean, you know, so I know it's supposed to be good for your health and it's relaxing and, you know, it makes your blood pressure go down. So, you know. But what does that have to do with... I mean, it's good for you. The reason that we do it is because it very definitely by stabilizing your attention and increasing the power of your awareness, you make it you make yourself more prone to insight. You make it much more possible. Your mind is always delivering jewels into awareness. But your attention is too busy chasing its tail to even notice. Yeah. So our insight, it seems like insight solutions are harder to verify than not insight solutions? They are, somewhat, because, uh, because you don't have the process by which it was arrived at, necessarily. Although, your unconscious mind does try to provide clues to help you verify it. And if you think about the way insights work in real life, you have an insight into something, but then you kind of dismiss it, but then it keeps coming back. And especially if it comes back in a different situation, all of a sudden it has a whole lot more weight. And if, once again, you kind of, yeah, but if, if it comes back yet again in another situation, and this, this is how they 
this is how they verify themselves. You know, that part of your unconscious mind to figure out this this works. You know, it waits its chance and it says, "See, I told you, it works here too." <laughs> Until finally, the rest of your mind says, "Okay, you're right." This is a really important part of what happens in meditation. When we talk about when we talk about the progress of insight, the 18 different knowledges that a person progresses through that culminate in that insight that totally transforms you, makes you into an awakened being rather than a worldling. The insights have to go through this process. It is a process of encouraging the insights to come forward, holding them when they're there, trying them out and testing them over and over again. There's a lot of resistance to be overcome. Because one of the things that insights tend to do is they tend to change at a deep level the way the way the model your mind has created of reality including yourself. And it doesn't make those kind of changes easily. Right? It takes a certain amount of convincing. That verification of insight is a really important part of the process. Yes? I, I would like to know a little bit more about intuition. In other contexts, you have several times said there is no real intuition. That is an illusion, too. That whatever comes up, it might work or not, but it is also an, an, an illusion. So right now, it's the jewels from the subconsciousness mm -hmm. coming up. And I'm a little confused about the definition. That, I'm really glad you asked, Ella. Okay. Intuition and insight are basically the same thing. What they are are ideas offered to the rest of the mind through consciousness, by being made consciousness, by being made conscious. But where each individual idea comes from, is limited. The problem with intuition is that it's not necessarily right. As a matter of fact, your intuitive view of who and what you are is totally wrong. Otherwise, you would have no need to meditate and try to gain insight. Your intuitive view of reality is totally wrong. This, was, this is what the Buddha said. He said, we've got to solve this problem. The intuitive view of reality that you hold is the problem because it is wrong. Your intuition is wrong. So we have to, the process of insight is changing, it is to change your intuitive view of reality and make it one that is more correct and therefore more functional and better. The problem is some people, they become enamored of intuition. You know, well, if I don't know where it came from, it must be right. <laughs> um, intuition is fabulously useful, but in, no intuition is is any better than the conscious analysis that validates it. Right? And we're full of intuitions that are based on wrong premises. Have you never known somebody that 
you were suspicious of them and didn't like and couldn't really explain why. It was just kind of an intuition. And then somebody told you something about them. And it's like, oh, all right, wow. You know, all the suspicion goes away and the dislike goes away. Well, or the opposite. Well, or the opposite. <laughs> yeah, or, or the opposite, yeah. But, but where it goes away, it illustrates the fact that your intuition, I mean, from the point of view of the part of your mind that said, can't trust this guy, it's totally logical. You don't know what that basis is. Uh, it could be something as trivial as it reminds you of somebody else that you didn't like. But it could be, you know, it could be many other things. But the point is that the judgment may not be valid because the criteria it's based on are not valid. And if you accept the judgment in consciousness, then, I mean, in the situation I described, you don't have any other information to go on. So consciousness says, well, there's no good reason not to trust this guy, but I'm going to go with my gut. Then you have to do that. You have no choice. But when you come, when you come across a new piece of information, then everything is readjusted. So that's, that's what I was saying about intuition previously, is this idea that somehow, because it comes from nowhere and you don't know where it came from, it must be magical, it must be good, and it must be far more reliable than anything that you can come up with by logic. It may necessarily so. Sometimes it is. It might be. But we need both of these. We, you need, you know, in the example I gave of problem solving, you need intuition, and you need and you need logic and analysis. And if you don't have, if you're weak in either one, you're not going to do as well, right? If you're overly logical and you refuse to listen to intuition and insight, you're not going to do that well. But if you're overly intuitive, you're going to make a lot of mistakes. <coughs> it's the balance between the two, and that's why we have both. You know, and it's not a question of one's better than the other. It's that that each needs the other. So I'm glad you asked that. That's, that's a good thing to clarify. What we're, what we're about in this whole insight meditation project is making, is making intuition much, much better. See, your worldview and your self-view Let's, uh, let's invent some terminology. We call the two of those together your model of reality. Okay, so you have a model of reality in your mind. Well, do you? Not consciously. You have a model of reality in your unconscious mind. But it determines how your conscious mind functions. And that model of reality includes a view of the world and how it works and what it is and a view of yourself, and who you are, and how you are. That's, that's what your model of reality consists of. And you weren't born with this. As a matter of fact, you built this up from the time you were born. You had experiences. From very basic sensory experiences, you uh, developed concepts. And you began to fit those concepts together in a picture of how it, you know, started out really simple. That uh, when I have a gnawing feeling here, if I scream, 
then I get this nice soft warm thing in my mouth that makes the gnawing feeling go away. Right? And you built on that and you built your whole worldview and you built your whole view of yourself. And this is one of the things I find fascinating as a psychologist who studied the development of the mind and through infancy and early childhood and, and plot how this worldview, how this model of reality gets put together. But what are what we're after is improving that. Well, as a matter of fact, what any psychiatrist or psychologist or therapist, any therapist that's working with people with problems of a fundamentally psychological nature, what are they doing? They're trying to find the part of their worldview and self-view that doesn't fit with reality, that's making them suffer, that's creating problems, that prevents them from being effective socially, being effective in at work, being effective in their families, having relationships, or whatever it is. What it is, is there's part of the intuitive structure of reality that they're carrying around, which just plain doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And now this is true of all of us. As, as we grew up, we built up our worldview and our <coughs> self-view. And we kept having experiences where the way we thought things were wasn't working. Those experiences, that's what I call an insight experience. And the result of an insight experience is an insight problem. And when you solve the problem, you've had an insight. And by solving the problem and having an insight, you've changed your model of reality in a way that now works better. And remember adolescence, but for most of us, pretty traumatic period from about 13 to 19 or 20. We were constantly being confronted by situations that forced us, that presented insight problems that had to be solved. Because the way we thought things were, weren't, weren't working. And so we had to come up with a different notion of how people interact and how you're supposed to behave and who you are and what's important and what's not and everything else. So life is a process of accumulating through insight a much more workable model of reality. And we've all got parts of our model of reality that don't work especially well in certain situations. Everyone in this room, if I ask you to, in a space of five minutes, you could write down a list of things that don't work in your life, consistently don't work in your life, right? Now, there's an interesting thing about that. If they don't make us too miserable, we don't do anything about them. If they become a big enough problem, then we apply our faculties to it, we experience an insight, we see things differently, and the problem either goes away or it gets a whole lot better, right? But there's some people who for certain problems, even though they make them quite miserable, can't do that. Those are the ones that need therapy. 
Because there's something in their mind that prevents them from looking at the problem as a problem. It's too uncomfortable to look at, so they don't look at it. Or they're so attached to another belief that it's incompatible with that cannot look at that. I know things are this way and I will not look at that. That's not consciously, that's what's happening unconsciously. So their situation is they got this big problem and they end up saying, well doc, this is my problem. And so then the therapist has to guide them to confront the problem. In other words, to confront the experience that doesn't work. When they, can, when they actually succeed in confronting the experience that doesn't work, that experience, instead of being something that they constantly avoided, it becomes an insight experience. Now, as an insight experience, it can lead to an insight. If they are willing to confront it and work with it and find a solution to it, Consciously, they'll think about the problem, but unconsciously, their mind is... Basically, your mind unconsciously is looking at how it could tweak its model of reality in a way that will resolve this. But, you, but your unconscious mind won't do that till it's been forced to confront the fact that something doesn't work. So, inside experiences, anything that challenges your normal way of viewing things, is an inside experience. When it's recognized and confronted, it creates an inside problem, just like, you know, the, the box of tacks and the candle. And once you've got, once your mind, once your conscious mind has prepared the problem, remember the four stages? You have to prepare the problem. You have to think about it consciously. You have to let yourself, that's what confronting it means. You have to let yourself, oh, yeah, this is the problem and these are the pieces and this is how they don't work. Once you do that, both the conscious and the unconscious mind, you can go to the incubation state and it starts working away at trying to find a solution. And when it finds a solution, that's an insight. Then you've had an insight. And if it's a true insight, it changes the way you view the world and it changes the way you respond to it, and everything is better to that degree. So that's what therapy is about, trying to create insight. Well, we have this wonderful therapist named Siddhartha Gautama, <laughs> of the Sakya clan, who's reaching across 2,500 years to say to all of you people who hopefully you don't have the kind of problems that require a lot of time with therapists. But to say, say, you know, even those who the psychiatrist would say, yeah, don't worry about it, you're doing pretty well. <laughs> but you know you're not as happy as you could be. You know you're not realizing your full potential. And you would really, you know there's a lot more suffering in your life than there should be more problems. Right? He is reaching across and he is offering to do exactly the same thing. Through a combination of meditation and following the guidelines that have been passed down to us, what we can do is we can recognize those things that aren't working. We can confront them 
we can set the processes in motion in our mind which will generate insights. We will examine and test those insights and once once they have once they've gelled, we're changed. And it's a process. We change incrementally. There's a really big change that happens at the end. It's sort of like at first the changes are kind of happening up here at the most superficial level. And then they start happening at a deeper level. And then at a deeper level. Till finally they get right down there to the very root. And that's where the impermanence and no self and suffering, the insights into those, that's the very root. And when, when you confront those as insight experiences in your meditation, then your mind will generate the insight that completely turns around at a very fundamental level the whole way your model of reality is constructed. And when that happens at that level, then you are an awakened being. And that's what the process is about. That's what we're trying to do. Inside experiences. We have them all the time. Every single time in your life, something doesn't work out the way you thought it would. That's a that's a potential insight experience. Mm-hmm. One of the things that happens as we get older is we get more and more attached. I think we've laboriously built up this model of reality. Don't <laughs> want to mess with it. <laughs> and so we tend to ignore these things. Insight experiences don't always lead to insight. We may dismiss them or ignore them because we just can't be bothered. We'd rather not have to change. Or we believe we've got life all figured out, and so there must be some mistake. <laughs> not, it's not my fault. <laughs> there must be some mistake, and it's not mine. <laughs> and look, this has been going on since the day you were born. It's been going on since the first time you opened your eyes. And to continue to grow and to realize your full potential, it means that you need to stay open to inside experiences. So what we're going to be talking about this weekend is how the practice allows you to recognize insight experiences when they arise. And how it gives you the tools not only to recognize them, but to work with them so that the insight can arise. And One thing I'll point out to you, lest there be any mistake, you aren't going to do it. Your mind does this. And remember, an insight doesn't come from the conscious mind. All the conscious mind does is it does a lot in service to insight. It it shows the insight process where it might be getting off track by suggesting something that doesn't work. So, if you if you were to approach meditation and insight as, oh, I'm going to do this, one of the earliest insights that you're going to have to, well, an insight that you're going to have to come to before you make very much progress is that I don't make the insights. 
Because you don't. Their understandings are developed at a deep unconscious level. You become conscious of them, but you, the self, the I, you can't make them happen. And as a matter of fact, the more I there is, the more you fail to see them. The more you don't recognize them, the more they escape you. Because the ultimate fundamental insight of the insight of all insights is that this separate self that you think you are that can do anything is a total illusion. <laughs> so I would invite any questions that you have. Can you explain, um, in your model, how insight, um, I'd say actual insights, you have the experience, you get a solution, but then it slips out of consciousness, you forget it. Maybe it'll come back around again, and then you forget it again. What's going on there? Okay, well, it has to do with both the depths that an insight penetrates to, and also, in a sense, you might say there's a there's a breadth as aspect of it too. Um, how broadly that insight gets applied in terms of different mental processes and different kinds of situations you can find yourself in. First of all. What kind of change does an insight insight make? I think there are more powerful insights and there's less powerful insights. So sometimes an insight isn't going to do much more than just um, add an additional piece of information to the model of reality that you already have. And it solves a problem in one particular context. And when that happens, that information is available to every part of your mind. But many parts of your mind might not see the relevance that that insight has to, to them and their situation and what their job is. So their response is, oh, that's nice. And so what that means is when you find yourself in a different situation where that insight might be applicable, the part of your subconscious mind that's driving your emotions and your behavior and your reactions may not have gotten it. So in that case, you might have the experience that you would describe as, well, uh, I know I figured this out before, but I seem to forget it. So that's, 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 that's kind of the breadth aspect. Different situations where, now, the thing is, subsequently when you realize that, oh, that shouldn't have happened. I already gained this understanding in the past, and, and I don't know why it didn't serve me this time, but it should have. But when you become, that process is actually the process by which the part of your mind that dealt with this new situation is now realizing that, ah, it, you know, so now it's going to be applied. Now this, it, it still may be, that still may repeat before, you know, that that insight is really operating across a broad spectrum 
of kinds of mental activity. Then we go to the to the, the depth thing. And here a good illustration of depth is like an intellectual understanding versus an understanding that changes how you see things at an intuitive level. They're really not as different as they seem. To understand something intellectually, I mean, that's, that's at the surface level. Something happens that, that triggers a reaction at a deeper level. And at that, that deeper level doesn't, that, that emotional response to the situation, it doesn't, it doesn't possess the understanding that the analytical, rational part of the mind had. And so that's why over and over again we do things that we know we shouldn't because we're re reacting from a deeper level. The emotional reaction, the responses we have, everything. The information didn't percolate down to that level. And that's one of the really important things about the 18 steps in the insight process is the process of that information percolating down to deeper and deeper levels. So, I don't know if that answers the question you're asking. These are, in my way of thinking of it, these are two ways of describing how it is that we can have an understanding, a really useful and valuable understanding, yet so many times it's not there in another situation when we need it. It just it isn't there. We've forgotten it. I was just going to say, do you think that maybe that's part of, like with the box of tucks, if I own the eye, maybe sees it as just a box that is for holding tucks. Yeah. And we focus on what we know, maybe, and because we focus on what we know, we ignore what's obvious to the subconscious. That's a, a, a really important part, you know, this kind of goes back to this. Chris's question earlier, how do we have more? A very important part is to learn to let go of the assumptions that are standing in our way. Mm -hmm. And that would be an example. Yeah, this box, it's a box to hold tax. It's a tax box. Right? Mm -hmm. And to solve that problem, you need to be able to, well, to let go of that. That's only one thing it is. It's only one possible thing it is. It's an object. What what else is it? You know, and this this is one of the things that happens as a result of meditative training. Is uh, I mean, it, it's part of the realization of what's called emptiness. Is that something is the way it is only because your mind has chosen to see it that way, and that if you can loosen that up, then anything and anyone can be so many more things. And it, it just, the whole world expands as a result. Um, my question is um, how we, from where insights come? From, yeah. What? Can you repeat the question? From where we having these insights, from what I understand, you said we have a mind and it's only like little small dot of out of mind, it's subconscious mind. 
from where intuition comes in and yeah, insight so comes from the unconscious insights, mind. Right. So is insights coming from this little piece we can actually train and in enlarge in size by training meditation or insights coming from outside of our physical brain mind. Well there's a couple of different things there intermingled. At, at terms of uh, you, the only thing that any of us has to work with in terms of our intentional activities is our conscious mind. But since every, every part of your unconscious mind responds to the conscious mind, what you do with the conscious mind is exceedingly important. So you can, you, although this is the mind, consciousness is just this little part, it's a very key part. It's how, well, I'll just leave it at that. It's a very key part. Using consciousness properly allows you to tap into the potential that's in the unconscious. So that, I think, was one part of the question that I heard you ask. The other part you were asking, does this insight just come from your own personal brain mind or does it come from somewhere else well I could say I could say to you no it also comes from somewhere else and that's true from a mistaken way of viewing things um, because if I say that's true then you have your pic you have this picture of Okay, here's my mind, separate from the rest of the universe, and stuff is coming from somewhere in the rest of the universe into my mind. But, um, as you will discover if you follow this path, there is no separation. There is no separateness. The distinction between your mind and what you might want to call cosmic mind, th there is none. There is, there is no boundary that you can point to. So, in an ultimate sense, the, the, question, the question is flawed. But I think what I'd like to tell you is that your mind encapsulates itself to be separate. And we're all about overcoming that process of encapsulation, bringing that to an end. So, even though it's, well, and until you reach the point where you've managed to diminish your own mind's attempt to encapsulate and separate itself. Until you reach that point, most of what your insight draws upon is going to be your own, the cumulative experience that you attribute to this one body and this one mind that has gone through this, this journey through space and time from birth until now. But as you go along and your mind becomes less tightly encapsulated, you, 
your your insight draws more on all insight. The more the more beings who achieve insight, the easier it is for anyone else to achieve insight. Thank you. Yeah. A couple of times now you have mentioned that how we use our conscious mind is critical. It is. And um, there's there's a tendency to take conscious mind for granted. There's a tendency to dismiss that very thing. So I, I would like you please to say a little bit on how is it critical? Or how exactly is it critical? I've got this conscious mind. I waste cycles all the time. How is it critical? What you know, I can't be spending twenty four seven in meditation. Um well, first of all to use to use your words, unless they were Jordan's words, sitting in meditation is training wheels. And <laughs> once you've learned to meditate, yes, you can be in meditation twenty four seven, awake or asleep. And, and yeah. And and uh, there's a number of people in this room who already know that. So yeah, you can be. Uh, how do you use your consciousness? Well, right now you look at what the average person's consciousness is doing. They've got no control over attention, and awareness is sorely neglected. Attention is busy chasing after this thrill, and that bit of excitement, and this bit of pleasure, and this worry, and this hatred, and this anger. And it's bouncing all over the place like crazy. And at the same time, awareness is withering on the vine. <laughs> There's a lot of people who, once they've done their day's work, they come home and they turn on the television, and their whole, you know, if, if consciousness is this big, it just gets smaller and smaller and smaller until it's just big enough to hold CSI in the news. And <laughs> And, uh, and a commercial for Depends. <laughs> so, how you use your consciousness is so important because to stabilize attention, to enhance awareness, to increase the power of your conscious awareness. And then the job of consciousness is to allow all these parts of your subconscious mind to exchange information. A part of your unconscious mind projects something into consciousness. And in that moment it becomes available to all of the parts of your unconscious mind. That's the job of, of consciousness. You know, consciousness is more of a, a place than a process. When we talked about, uh, when I was talking earlier about consciously solving problems, what we're really talking about is a handful of unconscious processes dominating attention by debating the possible solution. And the other 100,000 unconscious processes, you know, are, they're working on their own. 
consciousness isn't doing the thinking. What's really doing the thinking is unconscious processing. And so when you're thinking and analyzing, there are certain parts of your mind that that's their forte. And many of us have allowed them to dominate consciousness. So that when there is a problem, it's that handful of mental processes that are really good at arithmetic and verbal logic and a few things like that, they jump in and they take over and that's that's what's, you know, and the rest just kind of goes on in the background and when part of it comes up with something good enough, it projects it in there. And then that handful says, oh wow, this is, this is good. <laughs> yeah. So you're saying I have a handful of processes that are the bullies on the pra- playground and sitting quietly lets the other kids play too. What was the last part? Sitting quietly and opening up to the other unconscious processes gives them a chance on the stage. That's What it means to cultivate introspective awareness is to open yourself up to what the rest of yourself has to offer. The the whole reason I had asked the question had to do with a dialogue from a friend who came up with this idea that moved her very deeply. It moved her so much she was afraid to do it. She wanted to do a healing prayer for her dead mother, who had always been a class A screw-up. There was nothing on the planet this woman turned her hand to that she did well. And she was alcoholic and addicted, and she did a lousy job raising her kids, and she have too many men, and oh man, the list this woman has for all the ways her mom is a screw-up. She decides she wants to do a a healing prayer for her mom, but her mom's been dead for 10 or 15 years. And there's this little voice in her head that says, oh, it doesn't matter. And there's this other voice that just throttled her and said, yes, it matters very much. You do this. And she went ahead and she was surprised at how much it mattered. And it has to be, it has to be that these were unconscious processes emerging into her consciousness and having this dialogue where she got to hear it for the first time. And um, I was trying, when I asked that question, to say, how do we better use our consciousness? Because me, I'm, I'm right there with the waste cycles watching CSI and Depends. Uh, and and I'm, I'm really trying to break that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it, at least when you watch CSI, you can watch your own mind watching CSI. That's a big <laughs> <laughs> Well, what you say, that the, the ability to access this from our unconscious intuition, it has something to do with our relationship to pain and to joy. The, our, our ability to... To access it. Um, well, it, it, it does in, in a very simple sense that when you don't listen, you experience more pain. <laughs> and joy is a mental state that reflects the unification of the mind. And the mind only becomes unified when... I mean, to... to for the mind to become unified, it has to communicate, and for it to communicate, consciousness has to be open to allowing different parts of the mind to express themselves. So, so there's a very direct connection in that regard. Okay. 
I have a question too. Um, when you spoke about um, that we can access our problems or solving problems through inside meditation, um, is there is there a cultural cultural difference to it? Like, for example, a so-called crazy person in our world can be a shaman in another world. Or, in other words, when I'm sitting in meditation and encounter another stumbling block, maybe it's not a stumbling block when I would live somewhere else. So the thing is, what we do, I, I, think, I'm, I think I'm referring to behavioral changes instead of really deep spiritual changes when we look at, at what, what the problems are in our lives. To adjust or to really go deeper, and I don't want to adjust. Yeah. Well, you want to go really deep, but it, adjustment is is a part of that process. It's just that you don't want to stop with. I, I mean, you know, it, it's. Uh, excuse me, I have some severe spasms in my leg, which is part of the health problem that I have. Uh, the uh, you don't want to just be well-adjusted. I mean, the world is full of well-adjusted, exactly. miserable people. <laughs> well-adjusted means you're just not particularly more miserable than your neighbor. <laughs> and you don't want to stop there. But adjustment is definitely, you know, a, a part of it. When, when something in your life isn't working, it's an opportunity to, uh, it's an opportunity to grow. But, there are so many of those things that you could tweak that you'd have to live 10,000 years and, and practice mindfulness all the time to just uh, <laughs> and, and, and you'd still be just scratching the surface so but until you reach a certain level of adjustment then you're going to you're What's going on in your mind is going to be standing in the way of you seeing more clearly and seeing. More clearly. <coughs> I mean, you know yourself uh, when you are dealing with uh, a difficult, disturbing situation in your life. Uh, looking more deeply in yourself becomes very difficult. Your mind wants to focus on this situation out here. It wants to fix this. It wants to find some kind of external solution. So you've got to you, you've got to allow that to happen, but then what we usually do is we, we've kind of fixed things, and then we want to turn off and not go any deeper. But that's that's the wrong thing to do. That's only the beginning. Now now you've got you've got the external distraction out of the way. Now you can look more deeply into yourself and say. What is behind this whole situation anyway? Because it's not the first time it's happened in your life. And unless you look more deeply, it won't be the last. You know, if you don't look more deeply, next time it happens, you'll have a more well-adjusted response to it. And your therapist will be proud of you. <laughs> but it still happen. I just one more question. Uh, what happened with consciousness of, so to speak, bad people I call convict or child molester or something. Is that means they don't have, uh, they have conscience but it's broken conscience or they have just some chemical 
imbalances or what? You think what happens to the minds? Uh, to the to the consciousness of those people, we say, oh, he don't have any conscience because whatever. whatever. Mm -hmm. How you would explain them? Well, their mind is is, is extremely dysfunctional. It's it's, uh, it's not working. So it's mind. It's not something to do with this part of. Not something to do with. Not something to do with this part in the mind where we develop the subconscious intuition to guide it us, so to speak. Well, it, it is to do with, if you're referring to the spot, the consciousness, it is to do with what that person, how that person has used their consciousness and the kinds of experiences that they have found themselves in. Those two have interacted. They've used their consciousness in a particular way. They found themselves in certain kinds of, of situations and they have shaped themselves. And usually they've shaped themselves in such a way that they're going to have more of that kind of situation. This is karma. We create ourselves. This is karma. I see. Mm -hmm. so what we, what you do with your conscious mind, Buddha said intention is, is karma. And he was referring to conscious intention. Conscious intention is karma. Who you are is the result of how you use your mind. So it has nothing to do with some dysfunction in the brain. Well, it, it does have something to do. It's like you're not independent of that. But I guarantee you for, for any evil criminal person that you can find with a particular dysfunction in your brain, you're going to find somebody else with exactly <coughs> the same dysfunction that's a really nice guy. That's mm, a whole. It goes way beyond what's happening in in your brain. I mean, what is amazing, you know, there are children born with a condition called hydrocephaly, where the cerebrospinal fluid can't drain out of. The, you have hollows in your brain called ventricles, and can't drain out, so they swell up, and so they end up having a brain that's a fraction the size of a normal person's brain. It consists of this thin shell of brain that's pushed up against the skull with this huge fluid-filled space in the middle. And those people are able to, uh, some of them, not all of them, some of them lead normal lives, graduate from university with degrees in rather complex subjects, and, and so forth. So, whereas others are pretty much vegetables, it's not just what happens with your brain. That's only one factor. But, you know, it's a significant factor, nevertheless. It's, it's, not, it's not irrelevant. It's totally relevant. Yeah. Um, sort of uh, in reference to what you're saying, then emotion, what we call emotion, the feeling itself, how is that a part of consciousness? Emotion is something that's generated in the unconscious mind and it arises into consciousness. And the purpose of emotion is to cause us to take some kind of action. It is, it's, you have an emotion and it makes you want to behave in a particular way. So it's a good example of, you know, where do emotions come from? Well, suddenly start feeling some way. You say, well, I know why I felt that way. It was because he said such and such. Well, that's true, but 
did you decide that you would have that particular emotion? No. As a matter of fact, eat, no matter how hard you decide you don't want to have that particular emotion, you still have it anyway. It's, uh, um, there's, there are parts of your unconscious mind that that's what their job is, is to produce emotions. And they're connected to other parts of your mind that evaluate situations and say, aha, it's time to have this kind of emotion. <laughs> well, so that, that, that's um, often an, an emotion that you had, say, as, as a very young child, um, then becomes the model for exactly. how you interact exactly. and how you um, are, uh, how you think you perceive yourself as a feeling person in the world. And it no longer is attached to reality and is probably no longer true. I'm thinking mm -hmm. in my own mind, no longer true today. The way it was, exactly. say, yeah. when you were very young. So then consciousness somewhere comes in and it becomes an institutionalized thing. I would say it institutionalized in the hierarchy of thinking. Yeah. Um, that's a very, those are very hard to, sometimes very hard to break habits. Yeah, that, that is a classic kind of thing. We behave in a way that might have worked when we were seven, but it doesn't work when we're 37. And what we do is we don't look at it. If we develop mindfulness and we get in the habit of looking, then we'll see, and all of a sudden we see that, oh, this doesn't work anymore. And that's insight. And that, what's that? And that's insight. And that is, that's, that, that's insight. Mindfulness leads to insight. If you practice mindfulness, you'll have all kinds of little insights in your daily life which will allow you to change. You see, the part of your mind that has made you do exactly the same thing, behave in exactly the same way, the last 500 times this thing has happened, even though it stopped working many, many years ago, it, a situation arises, it gets turned on, it makes you do an act in this way, and then it goes back to sleep. And Usually what you do with consciousness is you, you try to forget about it, rationalize it, make it somebody else's fault. You don't look at the situation. If you look at the situation and say, wow, this is what I did, this is how I feel now, that's how that person's affected, and, and you just keep being mindful as the, as the situation keeps unfolding, that information is now getting back to, to the part of your mind that was responsible. And you won't have to repeat that very many times before that part of your mind gets a message and says, wow, I thought I, here, I thought I was helping all the time, and I'm not. I think I've got to change the response I generate. And so as a result of mindfulness is your personality starts to change. <laughs> or at least you begin to react differently in certain kinds of situations. But I think I, think I should probably let you go home. So what we're going to do uh, tomorrow, beginning at 9 o'clock, we're going to be doing some guided meditation as part of this. Um, and I'm just going to try to point out to you all of the insight opportunities, the insight experiences that are that become available every time you sit down and close your eyes and try to focus your attention on something like the breath. And then we're going to see how, by understanding the course of unfolding of insight, how using your conscious mind to know what to look for 
you can begin to make the best possible use of these insight experiences as they arise. And you'll begin to have insight. So that's why we're meditating, so we'll have insight. And so I'll try to explain it to you so the rational mind gets it, and then we'll close our eyes and I'll try to point out to you, and that's all I can do, is just point out to you all the opportunities that are there. And from the discussion, you'll know what those opportunities uh, can potentially give you. Okay? And if we have time, if I carry the whole process through, we will get to the 16th, 17th, and 18th of the knowledges uh, of, that are the path of insight. The last page of tonight's handout is the progressive stages of insight. And, uh, sorry, 15, 16, 17, 18. 15 is, that's the supra mundane insight that changes you permanently. Uh, and, yeah. Can <laughs> 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 <laughs>